Hi, guys. Welcome to Glossary of Gore, the Patreon perk where one of us tackles a particular term or concept we've employed on the podcast and breaks it down to its bare bones. Uh, Andrea here. Hi. Hello. I'm uh, here in the vault without Alex. And uh, oh, but Dante's here. Thank God for that. Man, I don't know how people who podcast solo do it. This sucks. Just sitting with a microphone. I don't get it. It's so much more fun with a friend. Thank you, Dante. Are you going to keep doing that? Do I have to put you out? You have to be quiet. Okay? Um, So I should thank you for your patience. First of all, this episode was supposed to happen in May, but obviously the world went to shit last spring and everybody has had to adjust accordingly. And uh, so this is a little bit late, but I really appreciate your patience while I got my ducks in a row. Today, I wanted to tackle a subject that Alex suggested, um, and that's the concept of hegemony. I'm pretty sure I dropped it in a few episodes. I can't think of what they are at the moment, but it's a pretty foundational concept in sociology. And I remember when I learned it, I had never heard it or read about it outside of school, which is usually a pretty good indication that it needs a glossary of gore episode. So here we go. So hegemony is the way I like to pronounce it. Um, I've also heard hegemony, which is, uh, I think it's also technically correct, but it sounds to me like a marital arrangement of some sort, so I prefer to say it the other way. But then, you know, that gets complicated when you get into related words like hegemon or hegemonic. You can't really say hegemonic. Uh, So I don't know, but whatever. The likelihood of somebody calling you out for mispronouncing this is slim to none, so you do you. Anyway, hegemony, as per its original definition, refers to the dominance of one state over other states. And that dominance can be political, economic, military, whatever. And I don't even necessarily mean state as per, you know, like the technical definition. It could be um, it could be people. It could be nations. It could be races. It could be all manner of things. Uh, Nowadays, we mostly use the term in a social or cultural sense to talk about leadership, but there's a critical aspect that differentiates hegemonic domination from other forms of domination. And it's like an important little nuance that sets it apart, and that is consent. Hegemonic domination isn't just a unidirectional process of influence. It isn't like putting a gun to someone's head. The power might be exerted in one direction, but the subordinate side is giving into this power as well. And um, I'm going to get into some examples later that I'm hoping will help. But first, let's talk a little bit about the history and the context of the term and what makes it so useful to sociology. So you've heard me talk about structural functionalism in the podcast, which is the approach that tends to think of society as a self-regulating organism. It assumes that there are cultural checks and balances that keep everything in line. And this is a very useful standpoint for investigating institutions and stuff like that. But let's not pretend society is perfectly fair and balanced. It's not. And that's where conflict theory comes in. Conflict theory examines how some of us are living on the backs of others. There's domination and exploitation galore in the social world. And so the the preeminent social thinker when it comes to conflict theory is, of course, Karl Marx. Marxism 
was named after Karl Marx.、Um, Karl Marx was a German cultural theorist, but he's best known as a revolutionary. He wasn't content to just examine the state of affairs in 19th century Europe. He wanted to fix them. He could smell which way the wind was blowing with the rise of industrialization. He could see that the class divide would only get worse under capitalism if the rich controlled the factories and underpaid the poor to work in them. Then the rich would get richer, and the poor would get poorer. And wouldn't you know it? He was right about that. That's my super bare bones <laughs> description of Marxism.、Um, and I should add as a little footnote here that、uh, Friedrich Engels worked very closely with Karl Marx on this stuff. They wrote the Communist Manifesto together, and academic sociology has a bit of a bee in its bonnet about Karl Marx getting all the credit.、Uh, but Marxism sounds better than Engelism, doesn't it? But anyway, I digress. That's just a, a little nerdy tidbit for y'all. So here's Marx and Engels in the 1800s, and they're like, "Oh shit, this industrialization thing isn't going to end well." But they didn't stop there. They didn't sit back and say, "Well, that's too bad." They had a call to action for the working class. They were certain that the working class wouldn't stand for it, and that a revolution would occur, and that it would occur in stages. They believed that the working class would eventually rise up, and society would shift to socialism, and then eventually to communism, and all. Poverty and starvation would just fuck off forever. Fast forward several decades to Antonio Gramsci. He was an Italian Marxist, a、hey, paisan. Gramsci is referred to as a neo-Marxist in that he built upon the work of Marx and Engels, but he wanted to break away from a certain aspect of their theory. Now, up till then, Marxism was mostly concerned with economics: rich, poor, haves. Have-nots. It all boiled down to cash money. Gramsci had beef with that for a couple of reasons. One was that he was writing several decades after Marx died, and you know what? There was no working-class uprising. There was no revolution. Gramsci believed in communism, and he was the founding member of the Communist Party of Italy. And guess where that got him? In jail. Turns out that fascist dictatorships aren't too keen on socialist thinkers, and so under Mussolini, Gramsci did most of his writing from prison. And he did a lot of writing from prison. He did a shit ton. He wrote over thirty notebooks of analysis that made up a huge contribution to sociology, most notably in the area of cultural hegemony. Ha! So we're back around to that. Now I explained earlier that the traditional definition of hegemony dealt with. Domination on a conceptual level. It's not like someone holding a gun to your head kind of domination. It's a relationship where there's some give and take. So for Gramsci, who's sitting his ass in prison, thinking, "Why the fuck didn't that Marxist revolution happen? Why weren't the working class rising up?" He realized that there was another kind of hegemony at play. Cultural hegemony, which operates at the ideological level, the reason the working class hadn't staged an uprising was because the bourgeoisie had managed to convince them that capitalism was in their best interest. Nobody needs to put a gun to your head when you're convinced that you're in a win-win relationship with work. You've heard the story. You clock in, you clock out. You don't have to worry about anything. You get your salary. You come home and you live your life. You work hard. You get promoted. The cream rises to the top, and everything is earned, and everything is fair and square, etc., etc. 
this ideology was so pervasive that the working class came to accept it as common sense, so they never fucking questioned it. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I was 26 years old and reading this shit, it just blew my fucking mind. I was already on board with Marxism, but Gramsci and cultural hegemony just put the last pieces in place, and and I loved it. I was so inspired by it. I, I liked how he wasn't saying that the working class was stupid. He was saying that they were manipulated and exploited on a level that was really difficult to correct, and fuck, it still is. I can't even believe what's going on in the world right now. Like, the world is on fire, and every time I think it can't get any worse, I see a tweet from Trump, or I see someone say, all lives matter, and my mind just goes straight to motherfucking cultural hegemony. Human beings are being exploited and stomped on in so many ways right now, and it can be so, so hard to understand why any of us are standing for it. And what I like about cultural hegemony is that it gives people some credit while also explaining why some of us would fight for a system that oppresses us. And it's a big, huge, complex topic. And it's been a long time since Gramsci was writing from his prison cell, but people are still writing on neo-Marxism. People are still writing on cultural hegemony all the time. And I think that they have a lot to say about what's going on right now. Um, I think Gramsci would be very disappointed with the current state of affairs, uh, as we all are. But he probably didn't realize when he was writing from prison that some Canadian white feminist would be talking about his work on a podcast. So if you're drinking right now, and I know I am, let's all pour a little out for old Antonio. The world is shit, but some of us are smart enough to know it, and that's something. So that's it for me, guys. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this edition of Glossary of Gore. Thanks again for your patience with me in getting this out. And I hope that the next time we chat, things are a little better. Um, I hope that wherever you are, you're staying safe and taking care of yourselves. Uh, taking care of one another is really important, but don't forget about yourself. It's like that, it's like that airline routine about putting your oxygen mask on before anyone else's. Self-care under capitalism is resistance, and never forget it. Bye for now.